Counting calories is out. Weight loss is an internal game, what I like to call weight release, and it all starts from within. You're listening to Confidence Strong Within, a podcast for women ready to feel good about their bodies, rediscover their confidence, and share their brilliance with the world. I am your host, Juliana Lima, mind-body weight release expert and lifelong health seeker. And I am so pleased to have you here. Let's get started. You're listening to episode number 165 of Confidence From Within podcast. And as always, I am your host, Juliana Lehman. And my very special guest today is Dr. Alan Christensen, also known as Dr. C. Dr. C came on the podcast to talk about a very important topic, which is thyroid health for women, especially as we age. In this interview, you're going to learn why women experience more issues with their thyroid as we age. We talked about important topics such as iodine, which is a quite controversial topic in the world of thyroid health. And Dr. C has really been a big pioneer in terms of bringing the right education and actually helping people succeed in their thyroid recovery protocols. He also talks about melatonin and thyroid function and the connection between the two, which is a topic that, again, there's quite a bit of contradictory misinformation out there, and he sets the record straight with recommendations that you can actually implement. And lastly, he gives us an overview of the different issues that you may experience with thyroid and what it all means and how you can go about getting it resolved and some natural solutions that we can all look forward to. So I'm very excited to bring you Dr. C. So let me properly introduce him to you. Dr. Alan Christensen is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. He is a New York Times best-selling author whose recent titles include The Hormone Healing Cookbook and The Thyroid Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured on countless media appearances, including Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He is the founding president behind the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians. And without any further ado, here is Dr. C. Welcome, Dr. C. I am so pleased to have you on the show today. Welcome. Hey, Julian. Thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. Yes, likewise. And I've read all your books over the years, and I have been a big fan of your work for quite some time. So for me, this is personally a very special episode. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of our focus today, I would love to talk about thyroid health. And focus very much on women's health and menopause. And to get it started, I would love to hear from you. Why is it that we see a higher prevalence of thyroid issues in women in comparison to men? Yeah, you know, not a perfect answer, but there's three really leading theories about this. I think the most compelling one is that thyroid disease is largely driven by genetics. So some people are more prone to it than others. And what the genes do is they change how much someone can tolerate a range of iodine. We'll obviously come back to that. But the genes that are relevant here are primarily on the X chromosome. So we define women as those that have two X chromosomes, you know, and men have one. So women have twice the odds of carrying some of these genes that give rise to thyroid disease. Second thing is that 
there are hormonal differences that are common to autoimmunity in general. We know that male-like hormones, the balance of them versus estrogenic hormones can make someone more apt to attack their own tissues. So this androgen-estrogen ratio. And we do know that apart from thyroid disease, women have about six to 10 times the rate of autoimmunity that men do. Not fair, but that's the reality of it. And then the third thing is that there's this concept called fetal microchimerism. It's kind of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Basically, when a woman has a baby, some of the baby cells can enter across the placenta and get treated as foreign and trigger this whole immune cascade. And yeah, in a lot of cases, thyroid disease results after pregnancy. So those are the top three reasons why women get more autoimmune disease in general and more thyroid disease specifically. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That was you know, very clear. And it's very true that we see a lot of that in our practice as well after pregnancy, especially multiple pregnancies. So that is just, I'm glad that you added that in as well. Now, in terms of the aging process, what about the tendency of women to have even more issues as we age? Like what is the behind the scenes science of that? You know, I maybe think of something funny. So uh, my wife teases me about being so stoic except for when we're playing board games. <laughs> so we were on a flight not that long ago and we were sitting across the aisle from each other and I got a Yahtzee, we're playing Yahtzee game and I was pretty loud, pretty excited about that, you know. So rare phenomena, all five dice, the same thing, but the more times you roll the dice, the more inevitable that becomes. And that's how probabilities work. Things that are not likely, given enough opportunities, become almost inevitable. And that's, that's the reason why so many things besides thyroid disease are more common with age. You know, unlikely events are more common with more time in a good way and also in a bad way. So, so yeah, it's, it's almost, there's, there's thousands and thousands of things that work correctly every instant that we're alive and able to perceive and interact with the world around us. And it's almost more amazing why I think more things don't go wrong. But yeah, given more time, just the accumulated stressors of life and the greater number of times that unlikely events can occur, it gets more common. And we see this very clearly. Thyroid disease of most types is quite rare in children. In fact, if you're talking about adolescent children, the rates are about one in every 1,250, so less than one in a 1,000. But if you were to take a young girl at adolescence and see the rates that that low and track her, by the time she gets to be 80 years of age, it's actually one in or for getting severe thyroid disease. Mm. So yeah, each each year, each decade we live, it gets more and more common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for that. And I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned earlier that I'm sure you know is part of our conversation, which is iodine. And I just wanted to qualify that by saying that you actually are the one doctor that has really shifted my perspective on the topic and even how I practice versus what you know I've been told 10, 15 years ago in the holistic communities in terms of using iodine for thyroid health versus watching for excess. Uh, so let's talk about, let's start at the beginning in terms of, you know, why would iodine that a lot of people believe is necessary and it's added in so many supplements, right? Uh, why could that be a problem for thyroid disease in general? And then we can get more specific. Yeah, great question. And to back up even a step further, This is a larger understanding of how nutrients work with the body, how hormones work with the body. When I first got into nutrition, I remember reading about vitamin C and, you know, vitamin C could help the immune system. And so it seemed a logical conclusion to think that, well, therefore, more vitamin C could give more benefit. 
And I almost felt like a gas pedal. Like the more you push it, the faster it goes, you know? But over time, the more I learned about biochemistry and endocrinology, the more I realized these things aren't gas pedals. They're more like keys. You know, if your if your car's keys are missing, your car will go zero miles per hour. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That's it. <clears throat> but once once the keys are in the ignition, the car is running. A hundred sets of keys won't make you go hundred miles an hour. It's not <laughs> yeah. a linear relationship. So yeah, nutrients are rate limiting. If they're lacking, something won't work. But they're not sufficient onto themselves. The more than there, the more that thing won't happen necessarily. Mm-hmm. And so all nutrients have this window, like a sweet spot. Iodine is unusual in that it is so powerful and the amounts are so tiny that it has, it has a special regulator. And that regulator makes a sweet spot even narrower for everyone. And then some people with these genes that we talked about <clears throat> have an even narrower sweet spot to where they're intolerant of even a slight excess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a really superficial understanding could be, oh, your thyroid needs iodine. Therefore, the more we pour in iodine, the stronger the thyroid is. But now that we see this, it's it's actually the opposite. So we need this certain range. And for some people, that range is lower and narrower. And paradoxically, when we get above that range, not only is that less effective, it actually harms the thyroid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I, I think it was part of like some of the video series you've done when you released the Thyroid Reset Diet, your wonderful book that I'll make sure it's all linked in the show notes below. And I remember you talking about even things that we're not even considering, for example, body care products like your shampoo and conditioner, that that alone, considering how little gets absorbed through the skin, could already be more than that narrow tolerance for some individuals. So talk to us about how little is that tolerance versus what I think you perceive and what are some of the potential hidden places that that could be coming from? You know, one of the courses in medical school that was memorable to me, this uh, doctor, Dr. Lise Elsler, she's she's doing great work still, but she brought in some packets of colored powder for us. And this is one of our pharmacology courses. And these packets were different sizes and they allowed us to see, here's a little tiny packet with a few specks in there. Yeah, that's 50 milligrams of powder. And here's another packet with 200 milligrams of powder. And this gave us some scale about what these amounts are we're thinking about. So yeah. as a general thought, you know, a paperclip is about a gram or about a thousand milligrams in mass. And then if we go down, a, a grain of salt is about a milligram or about a thousandth of a paperclip. Now, if we go the other way, I'm sorry, if we go further, so if we go a thousandth of a grain of salt, that's a microgram. And that's something that we can't even wrap our minds around. That's so tiny. Mm. But to give an idea of how, how tiny that is, that's a millionth of a paperclip. So a million micrograms is one paperclip. And if we flip that, a million paper clips, that's the mass of a Jersey cow, like a cow that you would milk. <laughs> so a cow to a paper clip, like that step downward, can't even imagine it. That's a microgram. And so thyroid hormones and iodine, they're living in the world of micrograms. That's also a way in which they're weird. You know, most nutrients are hundreds of milligrams or even in the gram dose range. But these are micrograms. And because of that, yeah, the tiniest amounts can make a huge difference. So we do see that a lot of ingredients contain a lot of topical things. A lot of skincare products do contain iodine. And it's a horribly useful molecule, the same way that bleach and peroxide, it's a good sanitizer. But mm-hmm. to melt in those products, they do cross the skin. They can get into our systems. 
And those who are sensitive, we can easily get into amounts that can throw things off. Hey there. Have you heard of my new book, Release? A Woman's Guide to Releasing Weight in Midlife Through Becoming a Body's Best Friend? If not, go to naturallyjoyous.ca slash book or click the link in the show notes below to learn more and to see if this is the right book for you. I wrote this book for women to read before your next diet. And this is not a book about weight loss, another diet trend, or a magical solution you have not tried yet. This is instead a rebellion against hating our bodies and trying to change who we are. Together, we will release all that no longer serves you so you can get the body you want and make midlife the best and healthiest years of your life. I cannot wait for you to get the book, so go to naturallyjoyous.ca slash book to learn more. Now, back to the episode. First of all, I love your analogy. Like, I'm a very visual person, so your couch, <laughs> your clip was fantastic. <laughs> and, and that brings memories to when I was in university, biochemistry class, and we had a similar visual showing, you know, biotin versus other vitamins, just so that we could see proportionally how little little actually is, right? Yeah. As a, as a child growing up in Brazil, we used to get like, you know, knee scrapes and we used to apply iodine solutions and have like, you know, the little yellowy mark thinking that was a natural solution for it. So a lot has changed in my world since then. Um, but with that in mind that you explained that you're going to have not just iodine from food products, right? Which of course, yes, we will be eating through dairy and, you know, eggs and other, other sources. What are some of the non-food the higher culprit ones that women can maybe be mindful and look at their labels to see if there's any hidden iodine in there that's not food-based yeah great question so we see it naturally occurring in a lot of foods and then added to a lot of other foods and i think about you know how much our total intake is and if you look at that total intake the main categories are going to be uh, processed grains dairy foods you mentioned eggs so yeah egg yolks some types of seafood, sea vegetables, salt, those are the main things that make it up. And I think about of those things, which of those do we eat more of than we used to? And then which of those has more iodine than it used to have in the past? Mm -hmm. It seems that since somewhere around 1980-1990, the amounts really crept up. And now they've gone up by about threefold over several decades. So yeah, of those things that make up that stable intake, some of those foods, we don't really eat more than we did, and they don't really have much more than they used to have. Yeah. But two things stand out a lot, and that's dairy food and processed grains. So of, of those, they make up 23 out of the 25 highest iodine sources in the American diet. Wow. And the amount in most of those foods has doubled or tripled. So yeah, so for most people, they were consuming small, reasonable amounts, not a big deal. And, and for many, it's never a problem. But those really prone to thyroid disease they can easily get outside that safe that safe upper limit. Yeah, absolutely. And things like shampoo, conditioner. I know, like you have a list, and I'll link it to the link in your website as well. With a lot of the different words, right? The the term can be hidden within, and there's almost like sugar. There's like so many confusing names that you wouldn't <laughs> even think that's what it is, right? Uh, is there 
like maybe like the top two or top three names that we can be watching for in uh, non-food products out there? You know, that's a great analogy. There are a lot of hidden names for a lot of names for hidden ingredients like that. Yes. So in most conventional products, the most common label is PVP. So Papa, Victor, Papa, <laughs> polyvinyl pyridone is the full name. In natural products, they'll call it kelp or sea vegetable extract. And here's the thing, it's not, it's not something that's unnatural or bad or synthetic or weird. It's just got a lot of iodine. And the amount there is enough to really add up. Commonly, products that use it have it as about 1% to 3% of their total mass. It doesn't sound like a lot, but some products we use a lot of. You know, conditioner you'll commonly use 10 or 20 grams of. So back to our cows and paper clips, you know, that's 10 or 20 grams is 10 or 20 million micrograms, right? So yeah. even though it might only be 1% to 3% of that ingredient, and that ingredient is only like 12% iodine, and we only absorb like 4% of it across our skin, still, each of those things, you cut it down, you're left with what might be 10 days worth of a safe amount in one shampoo. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you're talking to foods that now have proportionally more iodine. Some of those very common body care products. I was, I have looked through every label in this house that I live <laughs> over the years because of you. Uh, and even things like, teeth whitening strips have PVP and I couldn't believe it's like oh yeah but makes sense right because of the whole antimicrobial aspect of it but the right. other two like to keep in mind I look at a lot of client supplements right to see what they're taking before we work together and they're I've heard you say this before that whatever amount is in the label technically is the minimum amount it could be much higher than what's in the label some of them are more like your you know, kelp extract and things that it's even difficult to know how much really is in there to have an idea of how much excess somebody would have in a given day. Is that is that correct? It's a great point. You know, and a common response I'll hear to my concern, someone will say, oh, my supplement has it, but it's not that much. Or I get some in there, but it's not that much. Well, the reality is it's not that you're going to get a dose that's toxic for everyone. But if you're prone to thyroid disease, even getting above like 200 micrograms can be a problem, can make a lot of things worse. And even above 100 can prevent your body from healing. And all foods have it. So I've talked a lot about some of the highest outstanding food sources, but no foods have none. And this is a good thing in a sense that we don't really see iodine deficiency anymore. We always get a background amount. And even diets designed to be low, avoiding the high iodine foods, they always have at least 50 or 100 micrograms. Yeah. So it's not that that amount by itself is a problem because it's not by itself. That amount is on top of your background amount that you can't avoid. Yeah, absolutely. What about the outside of grains, the highly processed foods? What would be some of the bigger culprits for people to watch for? You know, this is a great question. Glad you asked it. There's a lot of concern about just grains in general, kind of the paleo AIP world of thought that grains are just bad. And yet we have so many studies showing that people that consume whole grains have lower rates of heart disease, lower rates of diabetes, obesity, less inflammation. So how do you square that? You know, and what we see is that there's, there's grains that we buy in the store that are highly processed, and then there's intact whole grains and even just flour products. And they're totally different for their iodine content. Grains don't really contain iodine as a naturally occurring substance. But when you buy bread in the store, you know, Wonder Bread or even gluten-free bread, you'll get, in many cases, several days worth of, of an iodine intake, like all at once. 
And there's not even easy clues on the label, unfortunately. Some bread products will say that they contain iodized dough conditioners, but one study looked at a large group of commercial breads that listed that and compared that against others which did not list it. And you could have a lot of iodine either way. So yeah, just don't buy bread in the store, you know, bread, bagels, muffins, biscuits, things like that. If you're out to improve your thyroid health, focus on intact whole grains. You can have baked foods, bake them at home. You can do okay that way. And that's quite an easy way to still have a wide range of foods more safely. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for mentioning bread. I think it's something that's in, if somebody's not watching their diet per se, or they are, like you said, and going maybe like in the gluten-free route, it could be something that people are eating on a daily basis, right? So it is such a common um, processed food product. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned bread for that purpose. But also in the sense of knowing that nothing is good or bad, like the context matters, right? Like how things are processed. And and so when I used to go to a local farm and buy grains at the farm and ground it at home, and it was just everything tasted cool. so different. And it's like amazing to believe what we got used to over the years. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that uh, overall explanation, Dr. C, about iodine. And I really hope that for our listeners, if there is one thing they take away from this conversation uh, is to really get deeper education. I'll put some links from your YouTube and websites below as well. Understanding this iodine conversation deeper and really taking that first step, right? In case this is of interest to them. Um, a little bit of a side point here that I wanted for you to talk about, because when you mentioned in terms of more isn't better, which, you know, is such an important concept, talk to us about the connection between thyroid and melatonin. Yeah, yeah, fascinating thing. So melatonin is a hormone that the pituitary gland primarily makes, pineal gland, excuse me, pineal gland primarily makes melatonin. And it's a big part of regulating the body's circadian cycles. There's this dance between cortisol and melatonin that are it's in opposition. So when one is high, the other is low and vice versa. We now know that besides the pineal, that many other glands make melatonin, including the thyroid. And like other hormones, this one works by specific receptors. So the pineal releases it, it moves throughout the body, and primarily receptors in the brain take it up. And the body has ways of responding to hormones even if the amount of hormone made is not perfect. So the body, if there's too much, it can ignore the hormones to some degree by decreasing its receptors. So a receptor is like a lock and the hormone is like a key. So if you've got way, way too much of that hormone there, you can decrease your receptor count or activity. And if there's very little of the hormone, you can make more receptors and respond strongly to every speck that is there. But this is the part that just makes me nuts. There's so much data about how melatonin works, the amounts of what involved. And it's clear that the amounts we take in supplements are way, way above what the body produces. And in doing so, we suppress our own output. And there's a lot of evidence saying that can have negative repercussions on our thyroid, on our immune health, and also paradoxically on our sleep. You know, a lot of folks will take melatonin and they find that the first few nights, it does help them. But then what they find is, oh, wow, I need to keep taking this. I guess I really had a bigger sleep problem than I thought. Well, maybe not. It's a common cycle that when you take it, your own output gets diminished. And so, yeah, you can't sleep as well without taking it, but it's not your fault. It's just a common rebound effect. And as strong as that data is, 
there have been a lot of studies showing that microdose melatonin is super effective and doesn't have those drawbacks. And those drawbacks are even bigger for those over 50, over 40, and over 50. There's much more suppression. But yeah, doses in the 1 to 200 microgram range have been strongly shown to be safe. They've been shown to help the body use thyroid hormones more effectively to improve the immune response and give all the benefits of falling asleep quicker, staying asleep longer, you know, resetting jet lag, all these things, and none of the drawbacks. Mm, yeah, that is very interesting. And it is quite lower, right, than I think what, you know, is recommended and what people think. And I think there is a little bit still that more is better, sort of like on the yeah. melatonin, right? Yeah, and I think, I think a facet of that is then the companies compete with one another. And each one wants to show, oh, no, I've got a higher dose for the same price than that one does. And in most cases, the raw materials cost are not that great. So they're not really out anything by putting an extra milligram of that in. But now you commonly see products three, five, 10, 20 milligrams, you know, thousands of micrograms. And the further you are above two, three hundred micrograms, the more risk you've got of suppressing your own output, you know, hurting your pineal gland, slowing down your brain. Yeah, absolutely. I've done quite a bit of experimentation with myself in terms of what works for me. And, you know, to be very honest, at some, at some point, I just decided to just pause it. <laughs> uh, and I have not taken it for some time because even in small doses for me, I I felt I had no energy in the morning. It was almost like mm-hmm. even though going to bed at a decent time and cutting doses in half, quarter, like it has such a profound impact on me. And I think that was part of what opened my eyes to, wow, like this is actually more powerful than I think we imagine since it's just, you know, easy to access. You brought up a really good point that I didn't mention was that the other problem with mega doses is that your body can't clear that out overnight. And there's still some that's there lingering later on in the day. So you're kind of like in sleep mode during the daytime. So yeah, you're more tired and groggy. And it took me a couple of days to realize that's what was going on. I thought, oh, I'm particularly tired <laughs> and I'm usually very energized in the morning so it's like oh so that's when I started to you know experiment but a lot of times if you're just somebody taking multiple supplements it's hard to know which one is causing what so I just wanted to you know tell with you about that and you know bring this concept of microdosing right in terms of melatonin and see how that works for some people as well since sleep issues is such a big complaint that we hear for women in, in midlife and beyond Mm-hmm. And see, like the final sort of area of questions that I wanted to talk to you about is, and I think our listeners will probably be waiting for, for that, is talking a little bit about the different, you know, thyroid conditions and high thyroid antibodies, Graves disease, and all these things. So let's sort of a definition of what are the major categories, and then I'll ask you a couple of more specific questions. Yes, sure. Super easy thing. So thyroid disease is basically three types. The thyroid grows weird, it makes the wrong stuff, or it gets inflamed. So yeah, three categories. Grows weird, um, nodules, lumps, goiters, uh, cancer is the ultimate expression of that. Makes the wrong stuff, so way too much, way too little hormone, you know, hypo and hyper. And then inflammation, that's autoimmunity. And these things can all overlap in various ways, but autoimmunity is most typically Hashimoto's, or Graves' disease. Those are the two most common types of it. Perfect. Thank you. And I've heard you talk about Graves' disease as being reversible. So enlighten us on that topic specifically. Yeah, papers have shown that Graves' disease, there's there's too much thyroid hormone. And I mentioned before about the amount of hormone and the inflammation. So too much thyroid hormone is a driver of inflammation. And 
autoimmunity from inflammation is what drives Graves' disease. So when there's too much hormone, this becomes a vicious cycle. And the extra hormone worsens the inflammation, which hurts the immune system, which causes the thyroid to dump up more hormone, and so on and so on. And this is called the hyperthyroid autoimmune loop. Now, thankfully, if the amount of hormone can be calmed down greatly enough and kept there for a period of time, upwards of 95% of cases can reverse within 18 to 24 months. So yeah, if it's slowed and iodine levels are low enough and the body is well managing the overall effect of Graves itself, it often is reversible. Kind of a funny paradox because mm. the rate of it reversing is probably higher than that of Hashimoto's. And at the same time, the danger of it is greater than in the short term than of Hashimoto's. Yeah, absolutely. And how would you look at somebody that comes with a diagnosis of Graves' disease, but they actually does not show the symptoms and they still have the, you know, weight struggles and a lot of the symptoms are hypothyroid. Like, how would you put that in context? You know, this is a great, great question. And also a bit of a paradox here. The body works hard to respond against our hormones and adjust itself to try to manage that. I talked before about receptors. They're one case in point. So in the case of hyperthyroidism, your body has too much there. And it tries hard to get rid of those hormones faster and block the receptors and make itself, you know, more more numb to those hormones. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it's not uncommon to see either no symptoms or symptoms like there's too little because your body is, is blocking it. You're fighting it off yeah. or a combination of symptoms. You know, those things are all very common with that. Mm, yeah, thanks so much for that explanation. That is something that comes up <laughs> from time to time. And what about uh, thyroid antibodies? Like I've, I've heard you give a great analogy, so I'm not going to spoil. <laughs> so give us a little bit of a visual of how to understand um, if somebody gets, you know, functional lab testing done. You know, this is super important. And one of the most important uh, facets of this we can talk about. So yeah, thyroid disease as it manifests is mostly autoimmune. And all too often, I think both in the conventional world and the natural world, we get too fixated on how much hormone is there. And that's important, but there's not a stronger relationship between how much of hormone is there and symptoms as you might expect. Mm. And yet the autoimmunity can be a huge driver of symptoms. So yes, the presence of thyroid antibodies, the destructive changes within the thyroid, they can cause a lot of broad symptoms, including anxiety, hair loss, infertility, heart disease, mood changes, fatigue. And that, that can all happen even if there's perfect amounts of thyroid hormones that the person's making enough or if they need medications are on a good amount. And yet they're not feeling well. That autoimmunity by itself can drive so much of this. And yeah, I think all too often conventional medicine outright ignores the autoimmunity. But sometimes in natural medicine, we focus too much on getting precise levels of T3 or TSH and that might not have been it at all. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Thanks so much for you always have such a, a unique, fresh perspective <laughs> to look at concepts that we've been, you know, looking at the same way for so long. And I really appreciate that about you. So just to close the interview, tell us about so the two books that I would like for you to highlight. So your latest one, the Hormone Healing Cookbook which is beautiful, by the way, uh, but as well as the thyroid reset diet. And I love how you have the color coding and all those things. So tell us uh, about those two books and I'll put the links to the show notes as well. The um, hormone cookbook first off. So this is a cool thing. Uh, it's, it's a lot of good recipes. You know, however you 
wish to eat. You always want to have more recipes available. And no, nobody who cooks owns, you know, the, the correct number of cookbooks to have is a mathematical formula. Use a formula for that. It's it's your current number of cookbooks plus one. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, this is a great cookbook. And you can use this for fun recipes. And you can also use it to target five big hormonal symptoms. So yeah, weight, fatigue, brain fog, hot flashes, and sleep issues. And there's so much good evidence that simple foods can help those things. Now, the thyroid reset diet, this is a really cool story. So we've talked a lot about thyroid disease. It's a big deal. It's often misunderstood. The cool thing is that it's it's something that you can reverse the symptoms. You can reverse the disease in so many cases, and your diet can go a long ways towards that. So the thyroid reset diet was inspired by clinical trials showing that 60 to 80 percent of adult thyroid disease can be fully reversible through diet. And the trick is getting to this healthy, safe iodine window, a low one to reverse the disease and a broader one to keep yourself stable. And it basically guides you through using foods, meal plans, recipes, how to get to those windows. And those who want to geek out with the science, there's a lot of chapters about here's all the studies, here's how thyroid disease skyrocketed after salt fortification, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's all there. That's fantastic. And it's such an amazing book. I actually read it two times. That's awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview and I really appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts for our listeners, you know, women, you know, 40 and know they're listening to this and a lot of which do have a particular interest in thyroid health. Any closing thoughts? You know, the big thing is that 20, 26, 27 years of endocrine practice, uh, it's not about the prescriptions. It's not about the meds. It's not about the pills. You've got control over this. You know, what you can do with your diet, your lifestyle, your guidance from your practitioner, these things are bigger than you might think. They're, they're the large movers of this. So you've got control. Your body can heal itself more effectively than anyone thought before. And don't give up on that. You know, if you're not where you want to be in terms of your health, Stay working with your practitioner, you know, stay on that and don't don't give up. That's wonderful. And I think the the empowering message is a very part of my work, part of this podcast, really bring that power back. And there's so much we actually can do, right? And a lot of times just bridging the gap and educating and giving reliable sources of information like yourself to really help us connect the dots. So I thoroughly enjoy our time together and I'm very grateful for your time. And of course, your expertise and everything you've done to lead in this field. I've had the pleasure, you know, being in several talks over the years and, you know, my life has improved because of it and my clients as well through an extension of your work. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. C. Thank you for taking your time to get information like this out there and helping people along the way. And yeah, you're doing a great job. Thanks for, thanks for being with me. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Confidence From Within. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram at naturally.joyous and I will be sure to tag you back. I would also love for you to leave us a review on iTunes so you can help us support our show. Stay healthy and happy and until next time.